and welcome to On Cloud Ninefin. Today we'll be hosting a very special episode for you where we'll have some external guests on. Our own editor, Chris Happenden, will be hosting two of Wiles lawyers. Andrew Wilkinson is the Senior European Restructuring Partner and co-head of the London Restructuring Practice, while Anne-Sophie Nouri co-heads the Paris Restructuring and Insolvency Practice at the Paris office of Wiles. Uh, thanks very much uh, and I'm delighted today to have um, Andrew Wilkinson uh, and Anne-Sophie Nouri from Wild Gosschel uh, to talk about the new French insolvency process that we have uh, written about a bit recently. In a call that we had a couple of weeks ago, we were talking very much about the new process and we spent a lot of time comparing it to the new UK restructuring plan. So we thought that it would be a good idea to do a podcast on this and actually look at the new process, but also look at it in a context of how it compares to the UK, because I think that's the sort of frame of reference that uh, most uh, of the distressed investor user base is probably more familiar with. And Sophie, could you sort of start off and just give us a little bit of an outline in terms of the main points of the the new French process? I know in the past that France has been seen as a, a quite a debtor-friendly jurisdiction, and it would be useful to just get an idea of uh, what has changed uh, from you know some of the situations we've seen in the past with some sort of negative news flow around names such as Rally and Comexposium. It would be good to get your sort of high-level points in terms of what the new process involves. Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris, for uh, inviting us to this uh, podcast. It's really a pleasure uh, to be here and to, uh, to compare the French system and the, uh, the, the UK system together with you and, uh, and Andrew. So just to summarize the reform that came into force uh, beginning of October, the, the whole objective was really to rebalance the uh, competing interest uh, of different stakeholders and have a, so that investors have a very different views on, uh, on the French system and so that we can show that um, we're not focused on the debtors, but we also consider, of course, the interest of, uh, of creditors. Uh, the uh, very first change, which is the, uh, the most massive one, relates to the uh, 10-year term out. As you said, you may have heard about Rally, about Comexposium. Further to the reform, this 10-year term out will not exist anymore. It will no longer be on the table. It's true for large companies, for companies with uh, uh, revenues of more than 40 million euros. Below that threshold, 10-year term out will still be applicable, but, but again, only for, for small companies. Uh, the second major change relates to the classification of creditors. You may know that before the reform, creditors were classified depending on the type of their claims. Now it's different. It's really dependent on their economic interest. So, of course, in a, in a restructuring where the restructuring is, is a financial restructuring, creditors will uh, be ranked depending on the intercreditor agreement. And, of course, uh, whether or not the whole security interest will be taken into account. And uh, one thing also to mention about this is that before, uh, shareholders and creditors could vote in the same class. Now it's totally different. Shareholders will all vote in a, in a different class, which will be separate from the class of creditors. The third change is uh, about cross-class cramdown. Uh, now it will be enforced from October, but cross-class down can also be imposed on shareholders. Before, uh, shareholders had a, man, a veto right, which no longer exists. Um, what is also in the fourth major change is the valuation. 
Now it will be tested for, for cross-class cramdown and also uh, in order to test the uh, best interest of, um, of creditors. I think that's, uh, that's it, the major changes in, uh, in our system. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, and Andrew, can you just give us a, a sort of brief overview of the UK restructuring plan? I know it's been a little while now, but I think it's good just to reprise the main sort of you know, points of that too. And thank you, Chris and, and Sophie, for allowing me to to crash what is uh, what is essentially a French a French topic. And I, I'm sure, as everybody knows, I'm not I'm not actually French, but I've taken a very close interest in the French restructuring regime over the years, going back to uh, Eurotunnel, uh, which was you know the Eurotunnel restructuring was one of the things that kind of created the distressed debt industry in 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 in, in Europe, and then other. Uh, some other large, large corporate restructurings over the over the years, and I've always thought that France, actually, you know, at the right courts with the right companies, is a pretty strong restructuring venue. Because my experience has always been that the sort of you know the the French courts and governments, when it comes to restructuring, are are pro restructuring. They want to see debtors, you know, come out of processes quickly and with you know balance sheets that are that are you know ad- ad- addressed and you know capable of, of investing in the business um, and supporting supporting growth. And it, it's interesting that both the UK and France have put in place at a similar time some quite similar changes to restructuring regime. I've always thought the safeguards actually quite a good quite a good process. And I liked the way that um, bondholders and bank creditors, regardless of degrees of subordination, would basically vote together. And I liked the changes with the accelerated safeguard and thought it was a sort of probably a better version of a restructuring law than the kind of scheme. But now the UK restructuring plan, the government pushed through some significant changes partly prompted by the start of the the pandemic. And we've got a sort of turbocharged scheme process. And in essence, the change is a cram down. It's an ability to bind into restructuring dissenting classes. As Anne-Sophie says, it's a cross-class cram down. So you can cram down a whole class as opposed to dissenting minorities within a class. And that that covers both creditors and shareholders. I mean, I wasn't totally convinced that the government really understood the, the 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 impact of senior lenders sort of cramming shareholders into a into a restructuring, and particularly the public company you know consequences of that. But I think it's very clear that that is the way that the legislation works, and we have an ability to cram down uh, creditors and and shareholders. And the kind of key the key legal test that enables a court to do that the no worse off test. So creditors have to be no worse off if they're being crammed down than under the relevant alternative. And I think it's around that issue, you know, that's going to be the kind of front line in the development of the law, because that will bring with it an assessment of what the real alternative is and how valuation works under the under the restructuring plan. And that's that's the those are the issues that the future cases will will address. I think one of the things that I thought we'd start with uh, and sort of looking at the comparisons is what actually happens in the early stages. So I know in France, we've had this concept for quite some time of a a court appointee, the mandat, uh, and the sort of conciliation process. In the UK, in the past, it's very much about uh, schemes of arrangements and CVAs and how they're prepared. But I think it might be good just to touch on whether there's been any changes in that sort of process, what you have to do in the early stages before the actual process is initiated. 
Um, and Sophie, is there any real change in terms of the mandate conciliation still being, is that still the preferred way of to have discussions with creditors? Definitely. In fact, well, the, uh, the regime of a conciliation or a mandate has not really changed. Uh, since the reform. The only change uh, with respect to conciliation or, or mandat ad hoc relates to the possibility for the president of the court to impose a two-year, not 10-year, a two-year turnout. Uh, before the reform, pre-reform, um, the, this uh, two-year turnout could be imposed on creditors only if creditors were aggressive, meaning that it's only if they start litigation against the company or try to see some assets of the company that the president of the court could impose that. But now it's even stricter for, for the creditors because it's uh, if they don't accept the standstill as requested by the conciliator or by the mandataire ad hoc, then the president of the court can impose this two-year term out. I'm not sure in practice it will actually be requested by the debtor or imposed by the president of the court, but it's just a threat so that people are forced to, to sit all around the table. But apart from this, uh, the exception of this uh, two-year or the conditions to impose this two-year term out, in fact, the process hasn't really changed. It's still a very flexible process. The very purpose of this conciliation or moda ad hoc is to organized negotiations, have a multilateral forum where all stakeholders discuss all together. It may also be a way to prepare an accelerated safeguard. We have a case, an ongoing case, where we have uh, negotiations without any conciliation, without any mandat ad hoc, but the objective is to launch a consent request with, uh, with creditors and assuming we don't get at least two-thirds of uh, a vote in favor of the restructuring plan, then we will go into conciliation so as to reach the threshold and so as to prepare the accelerated safeguard. So it works. It's really flexible either to prepare an accelerated safeguard, which is more or less the equivalent to a scheme, or, and of course, it's better for the company, it's really to have a consensual deal. Okay. I think, Andrew, with the UK restructuring plan, I think there has been some changes around the prep, because I know that before you would try and use a, a scheme as a way of sort of potentially jamming creditors into a deal by sort of effectively saying, well, the alternative is quite often an administration or liquidation. But it feels like under the UK restructuring plan, the relevant alternative is a little bit more on that on that stage. Yeah, look, I, I, this is interesting. Um, let me make a couple of points. I mean, first of all, you know, the current, the restructuring plan and the scheme, it's important people understand that, you know, it's a company-run process. There is no, you know, conciliation, mediation, and, and anything anything like that. I, I want to say something about that in a second. But both are restructuring plan and schemes. They are company-run processes. And that, you know, there's some good things about, about that. But one, one, I think, less good thing is, is that the outcome does hinge very much on composition of the directors and governance issues. And that's why when companies come to negotiate standstills or forbearance with creditors, there's often a great deal of time spent on governance to kind of set up the company for the process. Because how the directors go through a restructuring do they develop one proposal? Do they give the sponsor, if it's an LBO uh, situation, do they give the sponsor some sort of, you know, right like right of first refusal on competing proposals? Do they run a market testing process? Do they solicit capital proposals from outside? How the board thinks about those issues is, is really going to de determine the outcome of the restructuring. And there isn't a sort of, you know, any outsider. Um, 
I mean, the French process where there is somebody who sort of, you know, sets up negotiations and supervises negotiations might be a bit more in step with regimes like the like the states. I've been spending a bit of time recently on a super complicated multilateral restructuring around Puerto Rico. And that has got to the stage that it's got to because of court supervised mediation. There have been a whole series of mediations to sort of settle issues between the sub-sovereign and various instrumentalities and the creditors. And I do think there is a role for somebody to you know supervise the negotiations, often very complicated negotiations, in a in a restructuring process, and years ago, you know, when you were faced with a you know, very complicated, delicate situation requiring negotiations to advance, you know, a particular outcome, there used to be ways in 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 London for that to happen. You know, I'm old enough to remember the London Rules and the Bank of England. The Bank of England, you know, this is, goes back to the 1980s, did have a role in supervising negotiations. Then you had the City Disputes Panel and various bodies that would make sure that there was, you know, a sensible outcome and and and, and process. And that's been kind of lacking from from restructuring. And I must admit, I think it's quite an interesting idea that you know you might look at you know, conciliation or mediation as an adjunct to a company-run restructuring process. And I do wonder whether the government is beginning to think the same thing, because we're now facing a a possible new piece of legislation about the COVID arrears. And that whole thing depends upon the introduction of an arbitrator or arbitrators to work out, you know, an amicable resolution to COVID rent arrears. It's a sort of similar idea. So, I'm sure a great number of my contemporaries in London will say Wilkinson's taken taken leave of his senses. But I think introducing a sort of conciliateur or mediator into I'm obviously talking about, you know, large, you know, multi-stakeholder corporate restructurings. I don't think it's a bad idea, but we we don't have it now. What we have is a company run process. Problem with that is it can be gamed. Um, you know, we, we see the outcome will depend upon how the company runs the process and everybody knows that. And it becomes, you know, in itself can become, you know, a sticking point and quite contentious how a company sets itself up for a restructuring. I think that's that's a good point, because I think under the old French guard as well, there was this issue about the fact it was very much run by the debtor and supervised by the court. And, and it felt that there was sometimes a, a difficulty for creditors to pitch their their own plan or, or an alternative? I mean, has that changed now under the, the French regime? Not really. <laughs> no, not really. Well, you may know that in Safeguard, the company is supposed not to be uh, cash flow insolvent. So it's it's supposed to be at an early stage of the restructuring. Uh, the process is still run by, uh, by the company. This being said, whether it is in the framework of conciliation or mandadoc mediation, or uh, in the framework of a safeguard, there is still this arbitrator or mediator who is responsible for the for the negotiation. And the, the reason why in, in the pre-reform it was so difficult for creditors to be heard is because in some cases, classes were not formed. But now that the thresholds are so low and they are assessed at the group level, not at the company level, then it means that any holding companies which holds important operational companies will be forced, will have to set up classes of creditors and classes of of shareholders, by the way, which means that there will be a forum for negotiation necessarily. Andrew, I know that we've had sort of quite a lot of case law now with UK restructuring plans and quite a lot of 
sort of challenges? Do you feel that if you were advising somebody to challenge, you know, it, what would you advise them to do based on what's actually happened, say, in some of the cases such as Virgin Active? Well, look, I think the key the key is, and I think this is, you know, this is clear from the recent cases that, you know, the, the key is what is the relevant alternative? And I think the courts in London are not going to be interested in hearing from opponents to a restructuring plan if the court has concluded that value breaks in the supporting classes of creditor and the sort of dissenting classes are are out of the money. But of course, we still don't have sort of fully developed court rules on valuation. Um, you know, the Americans do. We, 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 we don't, we've moved on from sort of my travel and liquidation value. Um, but I think, you know, current value, particularly in a structure where the, where the debt is secured, you know, revolves around enforcement and sale values. I mean, I think that, that emerged during the financial crisis in 2008 and was kind of, was still, you know, that was, that's still with us. You know, where I think the law will develop is, you know, creditors put forward and opposing creditors put forward an alternative plan and say, no, 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 look, we could provide equity capital or better terms for, for the creditors in terms of outcome. We're prepared to reinstate more debt. We've got different views on the debt terms and just put forward an alternative proposal. Now, if that proposal provides the company with liquidity it needs and a sustainable balance sheet different to the company's proposal, but one where there is a better a better outcome for dissenting creditors, then the court is sort of judging between possibly competing proposals and would have to say, well, look, I think the relevant alternative could encompass a different restructuring proposal. Now, I suspect the courts are going to be very deferential to the views of the views of directors. So whether directors have gone into the restructuring to solicit from their stakeholders alternative proposals or, as I think is more common to date in the UK, they'd kind of develop a proposal and put it to their creditors and say, well, look, here it is. You know, we've got support of one class and that's our proposal. And the alternative is we're not going to have a restructuring. We'll have a liquidation or a or, or a sale. And I think there's clearly a huge tension between those, between those two. I'm not sure a court is really the best place in a sort of evidentiary battle to determine what the better restructuring proposal. I mean, how, how, how does a court approach that? Now, it's interesting in the, the recent you know, opposition to one or two plans, you know, opposing creditors, particularly landlords, have not emerged with a, you know, a competing restructuring proposal. They've said they don't like the one the company's got, but they've not, you know, yet put forward fully funded alternative proposal. Sooner or later, an opposing creditor group will do just that and will turn up and say, look, we've got the financing, we've got a backstop liquidity facility, we've got a proposal that we're prepared to support, it provides us with a better outcome, and there's no reason why the company can't implement that. Then what does the court do? And I, I would say that you know a, a company going into restructuring should you know solicit well in advance the best proposal, be clear what of its stakeholders are prepared to provide capital on what terms and offer up what concessions, and then you know show a court that it's it's been transparent about the development of its restructuring plan. That is clearly not always going to be the case, and that's why I made the point about governance and who's running the who's running the process. But this this is going to be the I think the sort of key issue in the development of the law on the the restructuring plan. Uh, and, and Sophie, is there a sort of fairly straightforward test in France? Is it just a simple no worse off absolute priority test? Yes, exactly. We had this test. Well, we need to confirm that that the, any creditor or any shareholder, their treatment is better under the, the restructuring plan than they would receive in a liquidation. 
we also have to refer to alternatives, but <laughs> there's a, a, quite a contradiction because at the same time, in safeguard, only the data is entitled to submit an offer, to submit a proposal. So how can you test whether creditors would be better treated in an alternative uh, proposal if no one is entitled to submit an alternative proposal? So in practice, I think what, what we will need to demonstrate is that the, be the plan is better than a liquidation. In order to do that, what we are asked to do in the, in the reform is to determine the ongoing value of the company applied in liquidation. Believe me, Uh, liquidation rankings are uh, just a nightmare. And apart from liquidators, no one knows exactly how it works. So it's going to be quite a nightmare. But this being said, this alternative concept will not be really applied because no one is entitled to submit an alternative. That's not absolutely true in reorganization proceedings where the debtor is supposed to be insolvent. And again, it's logical, it's that at a later stage of the financial difficulties of the company, then in this scenario, creditors are entitled to submit an alternative uh, proposal. So the test will be to demonstrate that creditors are, the plan is better or is a better outcome for creditors than a liquidation and then the, um, the alternatives as proposed by creditors. But it's again at a very later stage Of, of, a, of the process or of the financial difficulties of the company. So if you were looking to challenge that as a creditor, what stage would you do that? Would that be at the, the confirmation of the plan or can you do that earlier than that? You know what? The more I think about it, the more I think that conciliation and mediation are going to be processes that we will use more and more because they are simple. Safeguard and reorganizations are, are getting more and more complex. And, and in addition to that, to respond to your question, the, the possibility for creditors or for shareholders uh, to challenge the plan are much more important. Creditors can challenge the, uh, the way uh, classes are set up. Uh, if you consider that your ranking should be different, there is a first way to challenge the plan. The second way also, when the, uh, the classes vote on the restructuring plan, any creditor, any stakeholder can challenge the plan, arguing that the best interest test is not complied with. Any affected party can do so. And the uh, third source of challenge is at the confirmation stage, where any creditor apart from class constitution, because there is one way to challenge it ahead of that, and apart from the best interest, but for any other reason, any creditor or any stakeholder can challenge the plan. And what is also extremely important to, uh, to, to remember is that before it was extremely difficult for, for creditors to challenge a plan because they had to demonstrate that they were in a totally different position than the other creditors, or as the case may be, that the, the, the debtor had committed a fraud. Now, any party, whether the treatment of this creditor is different or not, it doesn't really matter, any party can challenge the plan. So that's the reason why I'm saying that mediation or conciliation will be easier, probably more efficient process, because we will not have all these potential challenges that will slow down the process, that will increase the costs of restructuring processes. I suppose the other thing that is probably worth touching on is about non-financial creditors and how you actually bind those in. 
Um, I know that that's something that is an advantage of the UK restructuring plan, as well as before you probably had to do a scheme with a CVA attached. Is that something that's much clearer now under the new uh, the new French plan? In, in fact, the accelerate, whether it is accelerated safeguard, standard safeguard or reorganization, all creditors can be bound by the plan. Any creditor, uh, trade creditors or banks or even tax, taxes can be bound by the plan. But there is a a very important exception, which is a post-reform, um, um, employees are not affected by the plan, meaning that if there is any um, redundancy plan uh, during the process, then the uh, the employees, uh, will, you, the, the debtor will need to negotiate with the employees in order to reschedule the, uh, the wages or the indemnities that are due. Uh, further to the uh, to the redundancy plan, and this is really something new because before, when a redundancy plan was ordered by the court, then the indemnities um, were rescheduled over the duration of the plan. Now it's different; it's only subject to a negotiation with the uh, with the employees. I suppose, Andrew, I'd like to go back to you a little bit about the restructuring plan. You know, it's an ability to bind in non-financial creditors. And what do you think that will actually take over from some of the other processes? So the ability to, to bring in non-financial creditors as a class, particularly, you know, if you're going to you know, use cram down provisions, that is that is interesting. I still I still think I mean, the majority of larger restructurings in, in corporate restructuring in the UK tend to involve the financial creditors. And maybe there is a sort of deal around the pension fund as a sort of adjunct to that. I don't, I don't see, you know, re- restructuring plans involving, you know, crammed down, you know, employee claims or anything. I mean, I think we'll probably tend still to, to deal with social cost type issues outside a formal framework. But I can see in, in cases where, you know, you may have potentially, you know, large numbers of contingent or unliquidated claims, non-financial in nature, thinking about some of the sort of asbestos type uh, restructurings done in the sort of, you know, 80s, 90s, whether they're insurers or manufacturers. I could see those kinds of claims being the subject of restructuring plans more, you know, more readily, uh, potentially than than the scheme, given given the, the cram down ability, well, there is a debate about you know will we still still see landlord CVAs or will we see CVAs sort of folded into into restructuring plans? And you know my my view is that it would be better um, generally if 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 there is a sort of um, a a real estate component to the restructuring that it be addressed as part of a full balance sheet restructuring and and. Uh, all issues with the, with the company's capital structure be addressed, not just the real estate through a CVA. And I think that's been the great, you know, flaw in CVAs over the last decade or so, that so too many of them are sort of standalone restructurings. But of course, they're not restructurings. They're, they're, they're processes addressing real estate. But generally, you need a lot more than just a, a new deal around the real estate to rescue um uh some of the businesses that are subject to cvas as kind of precedent would 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 show i suppose i think we've covered most of the aspects i suppose one of the things that we talked about in our previous discussion was about the treatment of new money um and so feeling about how that's been sort of uh toughened up in france and if you can go into a bit more detail on that well um now any new money injecting the company during the process or for the purpose of confirming the plan or if the plan is amended, 
then any new money uh, can benefit from a senior ranking. And also, assuming the safeguard is converted into reorganization afterwards, nothing can be imposed on the new money providers. It's only subject to the agreement that they can be rescheduled or that you need their consent. It's true that their ranking is senior, but still it is junior to employees' claims and it is also junior uh, to any cost incurred. So meaning that... In fact, the, the senior ranking, I don't think it is super, super attractive. What can be um, an incentive for creditors to bring new money is really the fact that nothing can be imposed on them. You necessarily need the, uh, the consent from those creditors. What I would do in practice is not only if I were a creditor, if I was a creditor, I would not only ask for this new money privilege, but also I would ask for new security interests. Uh, otherwise, the sole ranking uh, of this new money, I don't think that's uh, it's going to be sufficient for creditors to accept to take the risk of injecting new money into a distressed company. The new French process and also in the UK restructuring plan, you know, what else would you like to see if you were, I don't know, lobbying lawmakers for you know the next version? You know, what would you ask? What would you ask for? Many things. <laughs> Many things. First. I think, uh, and this is something you have in a in UK scheme, and I think it's really, really efficient. Uh, our restructuring needs to be led at the level of each debtor. The concept of uh, guarantor release does not exist in France, or all co-obligers uh, need to start a restructuring process. Whether, and correct me, Andrew, if you, if you disagree, but my understanding is that in a scheme, you can focus the scheme on one debtor, and all the obligors fit from the terms of the scheme. In a LBO, for instance, it's also a way to preserve the operations of the company. And you could focus the restructuring on the sole holding company. And it, it's one of the, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, in complex group structures with, you know, multiple obligors or you know, guarantors, often in different jurisdictions, but that sort of third party releases, the ability to, to effect releases of many other group companies. When I talk with my partners about, you know, do we do we do a restructuring through UK process or a chapter eleven, that is one one of the the singular advantages of the kind of UK approach, that that ability to build in releases that would only be possible in the state. We don't need multiple filings. And you know, courts have taken a pretty pragmatic view on the scope of the releases. Despite the cross-class cram-down UK restructuring, but we're not quite on a level pegging with Chapter 11, because, of course, Chapter 11 still is the stay. And you know, you've all talked to American bankruptcy lawyers about the stay, and they will tell you it's a worldwide stay. That is compelling. I mean, in, in many restructurings, the alternative to potentially a difficult negotiation around forbearances or standstills. With Chapter 11, the kind of court-supervised stay, which will be respected by creditors touching the US jurisdiction, and most creditors do in some shape or form, that's a very, very valuable thing. And going back to the point I made at the beginning about the importance of, you know, if the company runs the process, you know, which it does in the UK, that process of negotiating standstills or forbearances can become extremely time consuming. I mean, I've had deals where the hardest thing to get done would be, you know, to shoehorn the stakeholders into standstills. And then once you've got one up and running, you tend to sort of, you know, renew it periodically as you develop the, the restructuring. But it can be a difficult and super expensive process. And I'm not sure it makes much sense. 
the you know the crown down depends upon you know the whole idea is you have a class of creditors um gen- often uh, or shareholders who you know will be forced into the restructuring and you know those groups often don't just sit around and wait for the restructuring plan to emerge they may take action against the company i mean i i think the case for a court supervised company initiated stay alongside the plan or scheme is is really compelling and i think it would save a huge amount of sort of time time and money and that that you know if i had a wish list that's the the change i would like to make the, the, i mean the other thing i mean it's interesting the french are taking very much the same approach on the no worse you know what's the alternative but you know i'm sure everyone realizes this no worse off test is an incredibly low bar if the relevant alternative is in fact a liquidation i mean the gulf between a liquidation value and a restructured enterprise on a going concern base is enormous. Uh, everybody, everybody knows that, and the kind of the thing that troubles me about the way that the, the, the UK legislation, I think the French legislation equally is set up, is that you know if the company makes the case that the alternative is a liquidation or maybe it's a, a it's a sale out of an insolvency, that's a very you know that's a very low number. If the court looks at that and says okay. Well, it's the outcome of that that tells us which creditors are in the money. Um, and if you're out of the money, then we're not terribly interested in your view of restructuring surplus. But suppose the restructuring surplus, you know, the surplus from restructuring the company, the Americans call it the post-restructuring enterprise value. You don't have a you've got a going concern. You've rescued the company. You've fixed its balance sheet. Suppose that the restructuring surplus is so big um, that it will provide a full recovery for the creditors who are in the money and the effect of the creditors out of the money on this no worse off test is they get nothing. And that now, you know, academics in the UK have different views on whether that's a good or a bad thing. I personally think it's a bad thing. Um, I think it is, it is not right um, that the post restructuring, you know, surplus, you know, goes only to the stakeholders who are in the money on a test that is relies on such low values. I, I don't think it's right. I would like to see an approach to valuation based on, okay, we're having a restructuring. What is the company worth after it's been restructured? And how do we allocate that value with a cap on, you know, you can't get back more than your par claim. And then the next in line will recover some value too. I mean, I, I think valuation really needs to be rethought in the context of the you know, the, these cram down regimes. So France and in the UK, and I've got a cram down regime, but I think we've got to think about value hard. It, so that's my, my second point. Yeah, I suppose in this uncertain world, you probably have a lot more variance in terms of outcomes. So I think that probably is something people are wary of. We talked before about the the, sort of the composition of the classes. The, you mentioned also about the shareholders and the ability potentially to cram down the shareholders. Can you just go into a bit more detail about the the dynamics of that and whether that applies in every case? They will not be automatically part of, um, of a class. It's automatic for creditors, but not automatic for shareholders. And there will be, shareholders will be part of a class only to the extent the share capital is affected. So we could be in a case where creditors are affected, they are rescheduled or they are asked to accept a write-off, but the, the share capital is not amended. And it's such a case cross-class cramdown will not be imposed on, on shareholders. So this may be something that will be further amended in, in new reforms because it's not logical that you can impose a cross-class cramdown on creditors, 
but not on shareholders. Yes, I, I totally agree. I think that's something that definitely needs to be invented. <laughs> well, that's it for today's episode on Cloud9Fin. Many thanks to Anne-Sophie and Andrew for taking the time to speak to us on this and to Chris Haffenden for moderating. Many thanks to you too, listener. Please don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.